Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is May 22nd, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a pleasure to be joined in dialogue by members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I'd ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I'll call on you in order using your first name. As always, I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I would welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in the final part of Plato's Statesman that we are discussing today, beginning at 294b, the visitor from Elia continues to apply the analogy of weaving to the art of ruling in a social fabric. He adds further analogies, those of steering a ship and a doctor tending to patients, as he begins to address the making of laws and the problems presented to the exercise of good statesmanship by laws that are inflexibly rooted in ancient customs. Plato also used the ship-steering analogy in the Republic, and we might imagine the sometimes turbulent affairs of a society to be like an unpredictable body of water, requiring a steady hand on the rudder. As a visitor observes, turbulence and instability in the fabric of society come about from dissimilarities between humans and their actions. In our previous episode, we considered the assertion that the wise statesman seeks the mean of extremes, and today we might examine the effects of both mean and extreme over the course of time. The visitor refers to time repeatedly, and most specifically at 305d. There, he states that kingship exercised correctly must not perform practical tasks, quote, but control those with the capacity to perform them, because it knows when it is the right time to begin and set in motion the most important things in cities, and when it is the wrong time, unquote. Here, the good ruler is presented as the orchestrator in time's flow, and indeed, the analogy of music making is brought into play as the visitor ends the dialogue by addressing the harmonizing of sometimes competing virtues of courage and moderation in the leader. The young visitor in Socrates examines six different types of constitutions as imitations of the truth, two imitations each for rule by one, by the few, and by the many, to which they add a seventh constitution, which is rule by knowledge. The six imitations, the visitor says, arises compromises that are inevitable over time in societies. And he asks, which of these incorrect constitutions is least difficult to live with, given that they are all difficult, and which the heaviest to bear? He goes on to question democracy, as old Socrates did in the Republic, because the masses cannot attain sufficient expertise and knowledge to guide the affairs of state with wisdom through time. Democracies, he says, sometimes succumb to rulers who are not statesmen, but experts in faction, and that as the greatest imitators and magicians, they turn out to be the greatest sophists among sophists. Today, 2,400 years later, we may not have to look too deeply to find such factional agitators and sophists among the leaders of what we call with a single name democracy. Perhaps we really ought to apply a number of different names to the current practice of rule by the people, as a visitor states, because in truth, not all democracies are created equally, nor do all democracies evolve in the same manner. When we read the visitor extolling kingly rule on the condition that it is yoked by law, we might give little attention to that condition and focus more on negative historical precedents. 
particularly those of kings like Henry VIII, whose rule was not constrained by law and thereby descended into tyranny, is a single, ideal, selfless, philosophical ruler possible? The visitor asks us twice to consider whether it might come to be that a kingly ruler would not maim and murder, but instead orchestrate the practical work of the office holders, and so set in motion the things that need be at the right time, and restrain other things from coming into play at the wrong time. All the while, such an ideal leader would keep both the moderate and the courageous among citizens in harmonious contact. And so we might now ask, is it necessary that history repeat itself? Or as an alternative, could we imagine a different course of time in which we elevate leaders, having knowledge of cause and effect in time, to guide us in this most complex of technological times? One statesman whose memory lives through time as a unifier of people, in such stark contrast to the factional dividers who plague us today, is Abraham Lincoln. I'll start by playing a reenactment by actor Jeff Daniels of the famous Gettysburg Address that Lincoln delivered in the midst of the Civil War that divided America for four years. Consisting of just 271 words, Lincoln's speech in 1863 was both succinct and poignant as it recalled the purpose of human equality for which America had been founded four score and seven years earlier, and called on future generations to honor the debt of so much blood shed in the battle for justice among people. Lincoln knew that memories are short, but as he stated, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. Memory is essential to the navigation of time, and as Plato repeatedly wrote, all knowledge is recollection. History will forever recall that it was Lincoln, the emancipator, who ended the brutal practice of slavery. Can we see in Lincoln some of the features of the ideal statesman that the visitor from Elia describes? Is Lincoln a prime example of a ruler who understood the effects of time, who led a so-called team of rivals weaving together their courage and temperance, and who knew the right time to begin and set in motion the most important of things? And what has become now of Lincoln's ideal of government of the people by the people, for the people. Is it perishing from this earth? And what are we to do about that? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, 
to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here, dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Well, there was a situation where there was a great complexity in life. Uh, I guess the United States had been in existence for the better part of a hundred years. And the complexity had broken down into incredible bloodshed and war, a great cost of life. And there in the middle of it in 1863, Abraham Lincoln gave a speech where he didn't try to divide people. He tried to bring people together. And he was acting as this kind of, uh, maybe the weaver in the um, analogy of the visitor from Elia, uh, trying, to, trying to bring the, the, the people who had participated in that battle or who had wit witnessed the battles together in a way that they could look forward into the future. And, and you know, he really called on our sense of time or the sense of time of, of people at, at that time to, to reflect back on the reasons for which this nation had been created, and then also to reflect into the future and to imagine that the great loss of life that had occurred should not be forgotten and, and that the reasons for their coming together in the first place would be honored. And so continuing this idea that statesmen really have a sense of time and, and really have a sense of the right time, as, as the visitor from Elia says, to bring certain things into motion. And when is the wrong time to bring things into motion? And I'm wondering what we think about that speech of, of Lincoln's. I mean, it's very famous, of course, and, and it's held to be one of the, the most compelling and short speeches of all time. Steve, your thoughts. Good morning. Morning. I look at it, uh, I think the way you characterized it is the idolization version. If you look at it analytically, the uh, founding fathers, what they created was not actually something where all men were created equal. The reason there was a civil war was because they didn't address the issue of slavery and they just put it on back burner because they wanted to, you know, it was practical politics in order to create a country that was independent of England. They couldn't do that without the Southern plantation owners. So what they were facing at that time in the Civil War was a result of the expansion of the United States and the new states not being slave states. And the, the South knew that eventually they'd be overruled and uh, that slavery would be overruled. So it wasn't that they were, the North was rising up for a great cause. They were forced into doing it in order to, for their own interest. And you have to also, I think, look at what Lincoln did was at the time as the ruler, 
He was also uh, the tyrant. Uh, as the Romans would do in times of trouble, they would allow for a dictator. So Lincoln used properties of the office that were not strictly bound by the Constitution. For example, he couldn't lose Maryland to the southern states, so he suspended their Constitution and did not allow them to vote to join the, the South. Also, yeah, I think you have to look at it in the historical perspective of what political reasons, for whatever political reasons, Lincoln appoint, had uh, Andrew uh, Johnson as his vice president, who was a, a Southerner, so he needed to get some support from the Southerners that were still with the North. And when the unfortunate events of him being shot, Andrew Johnson was in charge. He then, after all those battles and all those people that died there, he relinquished a lot of the rules that had been put in place in the South. And then a few years later, when the political parties were evenly split, they needed to get the Southern votes. They agreed to remove the, uh, the restrictions on the South after the Civil War, which allowed the, all the white slaveholder politicians to get in, the creation of the Ku Klux Klan, and another hundred years of uh, segregation uh, in the South. So just, just giving uh, that analytical point of view besides the idealized version of you know, his beautiful words, which were poetic and are a great ideal to strive for, but I think we have to look at it clearly. Thank you. And, and that perspective is really helpful. And you touched on a number of points that are very relevant, I think, to the discussion that the visitor from Elia raises in this section, or in this final section of the Statesman. In particular, the idea that constitutions can be fixed in time, or, or the problems that come about when constitutions are fixed in time. Uh, and as you said, you know, when the America was founded, there were, were a lot of things that were not yet resolved. And the war arose in an attempt to resolve those, I guess, each side thinking that it could resolve it in their way. And things didn't wind up being resolved. And so there is a constitution now that was put in place in the 18th century, but there are still some significant issues that are not resolved. Uh, one of which we could maybe even talk about today, which is the current discussion about abortion rights and the apparent impending overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision that was made, I guess, about 50 years ago for reasons that tie back to the, the rights that were, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. That's the reason that was used in the leaked Supreme Court decision that's, that's apparently pending. And so the question is, how do we deal with changes over time? You know, and, and in the first four score and seven years, of America's history, there were changes, and that led to this great battle. And you know, what is the what is the place of the leader in this? So you mentioned the word tyrant uh, in relation to Lincoln, and tyranny comes about in today's uh, in today's reading. And I'm wondering if Lincoln, you know, in his unilateral measure, as you mentioned, the suspending of Maryland's constitution. I think there was a number of other moves that were made in Congress to kind of circumvent what would be normal discussion. Does that really constitute tyranny in that case? Or was Lincoln still subject to laws? And with his cabinet, his team of rivals, as they called it, was, were there controls in place to keep him from becoming a tyrant? So there's a number of things that you really touched upon that I think relate very much to today's discussion. The other thing that you started off with was the word idealization or idealized version of the United States as being, you know, all men are created equal, presumably meaning women as well. And 
maybe this brings us back to what Plato wrote in the Republic, the idea of the noble lie. And when countries are created, should there be a noble lie put in place or a noble story put in place about the nature of the country, even though it's not all people are equal. It wasn't then and it still isn't now. But is there any value to this sort of thing? Not that Plato was espousing that in the Republic. I think we covered that fairly well, that that was not what was being sold as, as the best way forward. But do we fall into this trap periodically where we think that these stories will persist through time and then they start to fray over time? So you raised a number of really important points, and thank you for that. And let, let's discuss those. Let's discuss those because it's very important to understand what what the visitor from Elia is saying with respect to constitutions and is it necessary to write laws down? So, and there's a section I'll, I'll just read you know, momentarily. We'll we'll take Darren first, and I'll, I thought I would read 294b to d. Uh, Darren, your thoughts. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So it's interesting that you mentioned you want to read that passage because I was just looking there. <laughs> I was gonna I was just gonna say something about maybe maybe not exactly what uh, you were gonna bring up, but but I guess I'll just lay my own thoughts out because. There's so many uh, interesting points that have been brought up already that could be discussed or could be pursued. I, I find the uh, discussion about law in this in this uh, final section of the text to be really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things that are in interesting, like the role of law and um, what its place is in governing. And it turns out to have a surprising perspective on it, I think. But OK, just um, coming back, though, to the speech and what was discussed earlier, I think one of the ironic things maybe is that Plato in this text actually doesn't forbid slavery, per se. At a certain point, he actually ends up sounding quite, I thought, like really severe. <laughs> I, I couldn't find the section, but definitely in today's reading that he he's talking about how the statesman, one of the ways um, he weaves the people together is through education and choosing the right kind of education for the right characters. So you need good teachers for different kinds of characters. And then the pe people you can't educate uh, who don't have the right nature and also who aren't malleable to education, then, you know, they deserve the worst punishments and even slavery. So I was like, okay, well, Plato just got really severe all of a sudden. But I think my, at least the uh, translation I read Plato presents that as a question. And then the young younger Socrates says, like, perhaps or something like that. So, I mean, this is always a catch with reading Plato's dialogues, right? Like what is actually Plato's view or what is Plato actually just presenting or pro provoking us to think about? I think one of the important things, I mean, I guess we'll get to some of the nitty gritty and the details later. But like one of the things I like about this section is that it challenges us not to reified the laws or laws in general as if they're set in stone and all we can do is like follow the law and following the law is like the highest good you can possibly do you know and there's so much that where Plato just sort of wants to like poke holes in that like psychologically for the reader I feel like so one of the things was at 299b he's clearly had Socrates in the in mind in the background so he describes how ridiculous it would be if like he's comparing statesmanship to um, seafaring and, and medicine here. And he says, uh, wouldn't it be ridiculous if there is a law that if anyone is found to be investigating the law of pilotage or navigation or the subject of health and true medical doctrine about winds and things hot and cold, contrary to the written rules or to be indulging in any speculation whatsoever on such matters, 
he shall in the first place not be called a physician or a ship captain, but a stargazer, a kind of loquacious sophist. And secondly, anyone who is properly qualified may bring an accusation against him and hail him into court for corrupting the young and persuading them to attack the arts of navigation and medicine in opposition to the laws and to govern the ships and the sick according to their own will. That's in the section where they're talking about the rule by the many, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the, the problem that the many would have in actually understanding the skills that are involved or the skills that are necessary. So that use of the ship steering analogy, how is this mass going to steer the ship? Do they have the expertise? Right. But yeah. And then so there's this long stretch of dialogue is about various ways of looking at that. And the quality that's brought out in this particular particular line that I read is about w- what if they like forbid any speculation or like the indulgence in any speculation. And as he says, like just further down from what I read, like nothing they say ought to be wiser than the laws. For no one is ignorant of medicine and the laws of health whereof the pilots are in navigation, since anyone who pleases can learn the existing written rules and ancestral customs. And then later down, younger Socrates responds, clearly all the arts would be utterly ruined, nor could they ever rise again through the operation of the law prohibiting investigation. And so life, which is hard enough now, would then become absolutely unbearable. I found yeah, that section that you were reading at 299B where I've got in notes, the, uh, the point that particularly struck me, right, I think at the beginning of 299B is he says, or young Socrates says, well, anyone who willingly and voluntarily undertakes to hold office under such conditions would fully deserve to suffer any penalty, whatever, and pay back any amount. It's one thing to be in power, but then another thing to face the consequences of power. And if you're not exercising the power with expertise, then you will also face potentially some serious consequences when they when the ship of yeah. state hits hits the rocks. I sort of actually understood that as a kind of joke. Like who would be crazy if anyone was crazy enough to take this job, given these conditions on it, that one of the one being forbidding speculation, but then there's other things that, you know, you're being judged by the masses, by democratically, about whether the ship was steered right or not, rather than, you know, by knowledge, which is the contrast here. The person would just have to be ridiculous to begin with to actually take up this job, given these conditions, that's these hypo- hypothetical conditions being laid out here. It's, it's maybe, you know, one of the problems that we have today now is that given the focus that go given the unending focus that goes on our leaders every word they say is broadcast all over the internet uh there's people twisting the words that they say who would really want to expose themselves to that now except for somebody perhaps who has something to gain by being in office you know something something for personal gain and that's maybe maybe that's what he's calling into question. You know, two thousand four hundred years ago. You know, are we? What are we seeing? You know, that question that I asked at the end of Lincoln's speech. You know, what are we seeing with respect to government of the people, for the people, by the people? Now, is it really turning out? Is is that ideal? You know, to use Steve's words, is that ideal actually playing out as Lincoln might have hoped, uh, or are there things that are really frustrating it? Yeah, that's a great connection. So I brought that uh, that stuff about a forbidding speculation up and um, how, you know, even the young Socrates responds, that would be terrible because uh, then the arts would never would be utterly ruined, nor could they arise again through the operation of the law prohibiting investigation. So I, I wanted to tie this back to like the slavery issue um, that I raised earlier, because although Plato like seems to suggest in a, in a section that, you know, the people who can't be educated, well, they should be punished really severely and don't have any rights, he says, and some of them should should be enslaved. 
but there but there is a big there's also another thrust in this dialogue and it's, that's what it is right it's not like a statement about what should be this is just a conversation between these two people and another aspect of that is that it seems to me that plato in challenging our uh, reification of the laws and it seems to be inviting imagination and speculation regarding the laws that we have he's he's actually inviting us to challenge and maybe rethink our practices and customs and i think maybe one of the reasons plato seems to couch all the uh, like that idea in uh like so, seems to sort of um, bury it in a dialogue maybe it's a kind of dangerous to suggest things like that I mean, many, many great philosophers, not just Plato, have sort of encountered political issues and expressing their views and political dangers in doing so. But although, you know, he might sound really severe in allowing slavery and all that for us today, one of the things that's valuable about this section is that he's also telling us not to reify the laws and inviting investigation about them and, and thinking about them. Well, for sure. And, and let me just, I'll focus on that 294B to D section. Um, you mentioned Plato inviting slavery or, or maybe condoning it under certain circumstances. If you could put that section in the chat, I want to just find that and uh, refer to it specifically. But there is one thing that I wanted to call into delight is the statement at around 297C, uh, where the visitor says it's no small, it's, they're talking about a particular issue. The visitor says it's no small matter if one stirs up this subject and then proceeds to leave it where it is instead of going through it and showing the mistake that now occurs in relation to it. Um, and I think this is one thing with Plato where sometimes people think that he is arriving at a conclusion about something, but they're not necessarily following all of the logic that's led to that conclusion. And, and his logic can be extremely dense sometimes. And that's you know one of the things I found when we talked about the Republic is that there are these persisting misapprehensions about the Republic. Uh, and I think it's because the entire train of logic is easy to lose. It, there's just so many pieces to it, it's easy to lose. And so one might look at the, the the myth of people being born of metals, for example, in the Republic, and you know bronze, silver, and gold, and think that that's you know what Plato is saying about people is that they're just fated to have those those characteristics. When in fact he goes on, and you know then there's that allegory of the cave near the end of the Republic, which is really saying something different. So I just wanted to call that into to light, you know, this idea that we need to get through that train of logic to understand what what's being said, but. You know, to relate a number of the things that you brought up in that section from 299, I just wanted to go briefly over 294B to D. So this is about the complexity of human affairs and these differences that, that are always between people. So in here, let me just do a uh, screen share. And I'll just read it. So the visitor says, now in a certain sense, it is clear that the art of the legislator belongs to that of the king. But the best thing is not that the law should prevail, but rather the kingly man who possesses wisdom. So wisdom is the key there. Do you know why? Young Socrates says, what then is the reason? The visitor says that law could never accurately embrace what is best and most just for all at the same time, and so prescribe what is best. For the dissimilarities between human beings and their actions, and the fact that practically nothing in human affairs ever remains stable, prevent any sort of expertise, whatever, from making any simple decision in any sphere that covers all cases and will last for all time. But we see law bending itself more or less towards this very thing. It resembles some self-willed and ignorant person who allows no one to do anything contrary to what he orders, nor to ask any questions about it, not even if, after all, something new turns out for someone which is better, contrary to the prescription which he himself has laid down. Young Socrates says, true, the law does absolutely as you have just said with regard to each and every one of us. The visitor says, 
then it is impossible for what is perpetually simple, he's talking about the law, to be useful in relation to what is never simple, in other words, human affairs. Young Socrates says very likely, the visitor says, why then is it ever necessary to make laws, given that law is not something completely correct, we must find the cause of this. And so there we have a questioning, as you said, you know, the, the purpose of the laws, and I don't think this is you know, this is not the final view. The, the visitor isn't saying that there should never be laws, but he says we must investigate the cause of this. Steve, your thoughts on that? Uh, the, on your point and what Darren said, first off, I, I think we have to look at Plato in perspective. When slavery was just a part of life for everybody, slavery didn't start in, in the United States. It was part of uh, Greek uh, all, all ancient civilizations, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, everybody. So that's, you know, he's not being extreme. He's talking about the views of the elite, which he was part of at the time, which was pretty much the view of everybody at that time in society. But I think the, the, the point about uh, the laws, there's two ways. There's one, you have the, you know, the laws can be, you know, set, set in stone based on ancient traditions but and sometimes need to be changed they also have to be aware of unscrupulous people that are you know the unscrupulous uh, medical doctor i think as he talks about you have to have laws to protect the people against these uh unscrupulous people but you have to also make it the law changeable but i think like in the in the case of the united states constitution it's difficult to change so there has to be some, some way of going forward in the middle way. And it's a good point. I think, I think a lot of countries have problems changing their constitution. I, you know, here in Canada, for example, you know, the constitution, well, there wasn't a written constitution to start off with uh, in 1867 when Canada was formed, but it was changed in 1982. But there was a compromise made at that point where certain certain provinces couldn't agree that that 1982 version should apply for all time. So they instituted what is called a notwithstanding clause, which is gives a province a right to override uh, one of the provisions in the constitution using this notwithstanding clause. So this was a compromise that was made in 1982 when the Canadian constitution was finally written and, and adopted. But it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question with respect to the relation of laws to time and the, the statement that uh, the visitor is saying that the, that the statesman must know when is the right time to put certain things in motion and when is, the, when is not the right time to put things in motion or, or when things must be constrained. And this whole connection to time and, and how it is reflected in the laws, can you write a law that applies for all time. Uh, and in that passage that I just read, you know, there's several references to time and the fact that laws can't be, it, it, it says any simple decision in any sphere that covers all cases and will last for all time. That's been what's called into question there. And so with respect to the US constitution, for example, as I mentioned, the leaked pending decision on abortion rights one of the reasons that is being used to overturn the decision that was made, you know, roughly 50 years ago, and I'm quoting, this is, this is what I got from the, the, leaked, um, the leaked decision as it was published in the Washington Post. It says, any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. 
And so that's going back, you know, some 250 years. But the fabric of society has changed a lot since then. And how do we account for the fact that, you know, a relatively small nation at that point has since expanded significantly? The, the population is not all from primarily England and a few centers in Europe. The, the population is from all over the world now. Uh, and all sorts of different ideas have come into play and then the practice of abortion itself has changed significantly. There wasn't safe abortion back then. There is now. Um, and so how, do, how does a law that was written, you know, that long ago, how does it persist and hold through time? Do we, do we constantly go back to these laws and we say, well, we can't, we can't resolve these issues among ourselves now, so we'll just revert to the old law as it was, and we'll re revert to these old customs, and we'll never be able to change things. So I think it's, it's a really difficult thing that the visitor is discussing here that really is something that I think reflects a lot in our world today. As you said, you know, how do we protect ourselves from unscrupulous people? without laws. And that's the that's the, the problem all the time. I mean, people are people, and there are a lot of people who will do selfish things at the expense of others. And one person's liberty could be another person's enslavement, I guess. And so that's the, that's the constant challenge. So how do we deal with the problem of laws that just become stuck in time when time moves on constantly? And what do we think of the idea that the statesman is somebody who knows when things in time are shifting and, and how we affect those changes and, and how we get people's agreement? You know, Steve, you mentioned that it's difficult to amend a constitution now. How do we get people's agreement on these things, that, that things have changed and it's time to change the rules? Darren, your thoughts? Hi. Uh, so it, it seems like Plato thinks that in order to do the best good that it, it seems like he he thinks that if there was a wise ruler that they would just be able to act very particularly regarding each person each circumstance so maybe we're going back to the myth that was in the first section of the dialogue about the um was it the divine king or whatever the divine ruler who was able to take care of each you know always has a hand on everything but as we see like that's clearly not possible and so we do need laws. So I'm just putting my, I guess, my own thoughts together about what I think Plato is saying here, just in response to your question. Based off, as we saw in the passage you read, Plato's, or the stranger says that the law is a very crude instrument and it, it's, it's a very simple device for a reality that's never simple. <laughs> and so it seems like then you know, they do pose a question and like, why do we need laws? Like, what, what are they good for? So at a certain point in the dialogue, and I'm glad you warned us, James, about how, like, how complex these dialogues are, because there's so many different moments. Yes. And they move back. And sometimes I, I'm, I lose track of like which form they're talking about or like what exactly they're what exactly they're responding to, what you know, proposition they're responding to, because they just explore so many possibilities here. But at a certain point, like we get this sort of opposition between, oh, there's we can have this uh, wise and kingly ruler who has knowledge and take care of everything in its particularities. And then and then we have laws. <laughs> so it, like the laws seem pretty bad at, you know, at that point um, compared to what that ruler could do. So, you know, play, yeah. So Plato does pose this question why we need laws. And just like, I guess a long story short, like my, my reading then is that what Plato then comes around to, and this comes back to what I said earlier, that. Although like we need laws because we live in an earthly world, not a world where there is an omniscient ruler who uh, can take care of everything in its particulars and always knows exactly what is good in each situation. 
And so the attitude, I, th I think Plato's suggesting the attitude we should take is that although we need laws that we should have a kind of loose attitude towards them. Like we shouldn't, as I said earlier, like reify them or like treat them as objects set in stone. And, and, and the laws, by the way, I think he also includes ancestral customs or unwritten laws, as he says at certain points. And so we need laws, but there's al always the danger of treating them as like almost like divine objects ruling over us rather than things that we can change in order to achieve a good society or justice. Maybe like just a passage I'll bring up is um, 301E. He says like, as the case now stands, since as we claim no king is produced in our states who is like the ruler of the bees in their hives by birth preeminently fitted from the beginning in body and mind, we are obliged, as it seems, to follow in the track of the perfect and true form of government by coming together and making written laws. So, there, and then there's this whole discussion about what is second best versus the first best, I guess. But I'll, yeah, I'll just I'll just stop there though. And, and and that's a that's a key point, right? That there is no divine being naturally born, and then so how how do you govern things when there's going to be mistakes? Uh, and I think that 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 B reference was I think that was a, a really good one that you called to light there. So I was going to say as well that uh, you know even someone who gives a law during their lifetime and 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 the visitor uses this in the passage that goes from 295a to 296a, he uses the example of a doctor who writes a prescription and and the patient takes the prescription, the doctor goes away, patient takes the prescription, the doctor comes back earlier than expected and finds out that the that the medicine didn't work as expected. You know, and, and this happens all the time, right? Like there's no perfect cure for things, you know, or rarely is there a perfect cure for things. And so things need to be adjusted. So if the doctor comes back earlier than expected, is the doctor supposed to stick to his original prescription and say to the patient, well, even though it didn't turn out as expected, I gave you this prescription a month ago and I'm back here earlier than, than I expected and you have to stick to that prescription? Or is a doctor allowed to change the prescription when he arrives back earlier than expected? And so I think that's that was an interesting analogy that that Plato gave there in in terms of the you know doctoring and administering to the patient, uh, and I guess you know just to think about Lincoln's words about the you know government of the people for the people by the people you know if we are to be governed by these laws that are set down hundreds of years ago is it really government of the people for the people by the people if it's constrained by these ancient laws. Uh, you know, is it really free government uh, at that point? You know, maybe that's that's a point that we could discuss. I, I mean, it just occurred to me that maybe that sort of thing kind of goes contrary to that ideal that Lincoln set out. And, you know, we tend to hold this ideal that, that you know, government of the people, for the people, by the people is the best type of government going. Uh, and we call it democracy by one name, but it seems to be turning into a number of different things. And so maybe there's some confusion there. So thank you for those points. We'll go to JK and then to Steve. Yeah, I think it sounds like Plato is, um, you know, giving us these uh, these little puzzles, you know, about to figure out, you know, what is the best government and and how do you find a statesman that's going to be able to to rule fairly? And so you you need laws to also constrain, you know, someone who uh, you know who you think is the right person for that job, but who is not and so you need laws to to you know you know prevent um, prevent uh, someone who might you know corrupt the system and do everything for his own uh, selfish gain. 
So there is no easy answer. There are law, we need laws, but at the same time, those laws are fallible and they should be uh, you know, amended when necessary and, and so forth. And you know, look at the law, look at the, uh, the second amendment, right? Yeah. We have all these problem with, problems with people, you know, you know, shooting people with guns and we can't do anything about it because the law is in the, there, it's established in the constitution, but nobody, you know, it's not enough people are willing to do something about that to make the changes. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really a difficult problem. So the, so the, even the, the, the people, the, the wise few who, who made up these laws were also fallible, right? And so you can't, you know, so you, you know, and so that's that accounts for why there are certain amendments that, that need to be made, be made to um, at least you know keep up with the times with the changes and so forth. And now we have a political you know you know these political forces that are taking us back you know to what the original laws uh, were not there to uh, protect certain groups and so forth. Uh, and those are oversights that would never. People didn't do enough to uh, establish those certain, you know, women's rights to uh, to make their own decisions about themselves. And so, uh, yeah. So, so it it is a kind of a, uh, you know, I think he's he just you know Plato's just posing you know all these problems with with how to uh, you know uh, run a society. You know, how do you, how do you have a harmonious society if you can't don't have the right person? to uh, enforce the laws or to uh, make the decisions necessary to, to satisfy everybody's, um, you know, needs and rights and so forth. At the same time, you know, um, you can't just have ironclad laws. You know, laws have to be, have to also keep up with the time. So yeah, it's, it's a difficult, you know, quite question because there, there are shortcomings in, a law, uh, in, in having laws and there are shortcomings in finding the right person to, uh, to steer the ship. Uh, and so forth. So it's a, it's a back and forth. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, I, that, that ship steering analogy too, you know, where the, uh, you know, again, the visitor says, well, you know, if the captain were to write down the rules in advance, and then all of a sudden they find themselves, for example, in a storm, and, you know, the captain is then unable to change the rules, you know, maybe the captain didn't foresee that there would be a wave of, you know, such and such a height, and, you know, the rules that he wrote down earlier prescribed that they would do such a thing. Well, it turns out that that thing that he wrote down earlier wouldn't, wouldn't uh, allow the ship to survive. And so is the captain to be bound by rules that he himself wrote down earlier for circumstances that could not be foreseen? And you raise the, the point about the Second Amendment, again, uh, the U.S. Constitution, Second Amendment. And my understanding of that is that it was written with with the mind to the militia, I think I think the original wording said that the that the militia should be allowed to arm themselves. And then I think sometime later there was a Supreme Court decision that expanded that meaning to all people. And and really I think there is a, a very good debate that Plato brings up is that what do we what do we understand the words to mean and how do we interpret that? So the the interpretation of the words changes over time there really isn't a need for militias now like there was, uh, you know, 300 years ago when these ideas were around. And so do we naturally expand that meaning to include everybody now that militias are no longer a normal course of, of events? 
and and what do we understand by the meaning or you know when when the principle is laid down that there is a right to life liberty and happiness uh what do we understand in particular by the word liberty and in particular by the word happiness you know especially when someone's liberty can uh, impede on somebody else's liberty for example if someone has a right to have a gun does that mean that people should be uh, subject to the abuse of that gun? You know, as, as happened in Buffalo, was it two weeks ago, that horrible, or a week ago, that horrible shooting where 10 people died because someone had, some 18-year-old boy had a right to go out and buy a gun. And, and so that infringed on the life, liberty, and happiness of 10 people who are now dead. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, judging whether these interpretations are right or wrong. I'm just saying that this is what happens when these rules are written down and, and set in stone for all of, all of time. And, and somehow there needs to be a mechanism by which there can be a rational discussion and adjustment of these rules and principles as circumstances change. So thank you for raising that particular example. We'll go to Steve and then to Jose. Thank you. Uh, on the point you just made, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that the, the United States needs to reform its gun laws. But if you, you say that the laxity of the laws is the cause, and you look at what that person was a copycat of somebody in New Zealand who has very stringent gun laws uh, that uh, was a uh, racist and he, he was motivated by racial feelings, and I believe he killed 30 some people. So I think that's, uh, you know, the, the cause is, is rooted into a lot of the discussion with the Civil War and rights. And, and I'd just like to quickly relate back to a point you made earlier about the Canadian Constitution and the notwithstanding clause, which is really what the Civil War is about. The, the Southern states believe they had a right to secede. And, the northern states, uh, you know, said in our laws don't allow that. So it came to the point where there was a battle about it. But still, in in Plato, in uh, 300C to 301D, he talks about the aristocrats, the oligarchy, and you know the the people, the democracy, not be able to put up with a, a monarch or a tyrant. So. You know, where's the, the, the divide? Where does the, uh, you know, good ruler, uh, you know, he can be uh, influenced more by the people with the money, the oligarchs, the aristocrats, than the people as a whole. It's saying that, you know, they're going to listen to, you know, groups, you know, trades groups of the, of the workers and everything. But you know, it comes down to who has the power. It's it's the realization in society that the people with the money uh, also have the power and they can corrupt the, the rule of law so that you do need to have uh, laws that are, you know, all you can base it on is your past history to be somewhat stringent. They can, they should be changeable and it's the same, but what you also see now in the separation of, of states' rights compared to the Constitution, that all of the you know red states in the United States are preparing to put in uh, very stringent abortion, anti-abortion legislation as soon as the ruling comes down. So that's a case of them changing the laws for what many would see as as a 
bad policy, but they see it as a good policy. So that's, that's I think, the conflict that uh, Plato was addressing. Good points. And, and, you know, certainly, I mean, JK, I think, alluded to the fact that lawmakers are fallible, you know, and which, which one of us is perfect, you know, if anybody tells me they're perfect, including myself, I'd say that they're a liar. Um, so we all make mistakes. And, you know, there has to be some mechanism, as you said, Steve, where is the divide? How do we how do we make that compromise and understand that we each need to, you know, forgive each other a little bit for our trespasses and errors? And, you know, how do we, how do we, what's the mechanism there? So thank you for that. Um, Jose. Yes. I, I think from what I have learned from my own experience with, um, with the law, not because I'm a, I'm a convict of any kind, but during the, my divorce, I learned quite a bit on how the laws, at least in Canada, work in, ge in general, the principles of jurisprudence and why is it that we don't have a law for everything? And uh, I did understand at least the, their position. And I think I do understand what the problem is as well in the US. And I will come at the end, uh, take this as a little bit of an argument. And at the end, what I, I believe is, uh, is something that could help. When you think about the, the, the judges, when they appoint the judges, there is, there is the law by the lawmakers and there is the administration of the law. And I think most of the issue is not in the creation of the law. Most of the issue, uh, as I will relate in a moment, is with the administration of the law. Uh, and why is that? When you watch the hearings to, for the judges, uh, the Supreme Court judges, typical answer is, no, I follow the law. I don't, I don't let my ideology or my beliefs or my religious this or my whatever beliefs I have, I follow the law which probably is a, is a good intention and is mostly done with the existing law because the existing law cannot be applied directly. It always goes back to jurisprudence. And the reason for that is because there's no such a thing as a perfect law. And I learned that as well as why is it we don't have a fixed law about divorce separation is because there are hundreds of thousands of different cases. So that's why the judges exist to administer and to adjudicate based on law and based on jurisprudence. Now, this is what happens. I tend to give the judges the benefit of the doubt that their ideology and beliefs don't get in the way of applying the law. Okay, let's assume that is the case. However, though, if they do come into place when they need to change, not change the law, but to set a precedent. And yes, you know, jurisprudence is based on new precedents of an old law. So then I remember this movie about uh, Ruth Ginsburg, the uh, Supreme Court judge who died last year, I think, or maybe two years ago. There's a moment where she's arguing for a change, uh, again, on the basis of sex was the, uh, the title of the movie. And the three conservative judges basically said to her, are you asking us to change a hundred years of precedent? <laughs> she said, yeah. If you're going to go, and then she presents a good argument. I don't remember the, the argument, but she basically says, if you're going to live like that, like, and that, that is uh, impossible to change precedent, they might as well forget about all this. The, the, the countries will never change, societies will change, and laws, the laws will never change. And, this, and that is when I see the influence of the ideological posture of, uh, of the judges, when they have to make a change, not to administrate the law, but when they have to set 
a new president. So my view in all this is a little crazy, right? But I think that uh, if any not, if anyone needs to be elected, and I believe that, that uh, I'm a little bit on, on the Plato side that I don't believe that much in the deep representative democracy because actually it doesn't represent and people are very, um, very convinced by a good populist leader. I've seen it in Peru, the country where I grew up recently, not didn't grow up recently, <laughs> I saw the election recently and uh, a populist leader can, uh, can convince people of something that uh, will never get done. And um, anyway, so my suggestion is that the judges are the ones that need to be elected by the people. That way, they would represent a composition of the, the uh, demographics. And the reality is that one, when it comes to set precedent, ideological basis will kick in. I mean, no question. See the movie uh, about Ruth Ginsburg, and you will see that, um, that at one point, the need for change coming from the changing society needs to be represented by the judges. But if the judges are, are selected by what I call a minority, because it is the party in power, to me, that's a minority, then we'll continue to have this, uh, this issues of setting no new precedents and overturn any new precedents that didn't conform with a hundred year history, to put it that way. Those are really great points. Thank you. And, and that example of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, overturning a hundred year precedent, uh, very powerful. And I just actually, you know, I noticed Vincent put into the chat window a comment about uh, trial by jury. And Vincent is saying that trial by, by jury was put into the constitution as a way of helping to prevent the um, rising of a tyranny uh, so that the people at that level of administering the law, as you said, Jose, people have some say in that process. And this, I think, is, you know, part of this complex logic that Plato's bringing us. Uh, he says a couple of things. He says that the leader um, should not be above the law. Um, so even a king should be yoked by the law, not above the law. Like Henry VIII was above the law. He could just change the law. Like he just completely reformed everything just because he wanted a divorce. And uh, so certainly no one should be above the law. But, uh, you know, the, I think there's a, an important point that's made, actually, that uh, in, in near the end of the dialogue, where uh, generalship, judges, and rhetoricians are held to be, and this is in um, 303E to 304A, are held to be the subordinates of the ruler, but very key subordinates, and they have to be carefully chosen. And so, you know, as you question, you know, do, are they chosen by the people? You know, but how, how are they chosen? It's certainly not chosen by somebody who is going to become a tyrant. I think that would be, you know, absolutely the wrong way of doing it, as you said. So, yeah, I mean, you raised that, that key point. Uh, and then the point about jurist, jurisprudence that you were talking about, you know, having this continuity of logic. I mean, that's the way I'm seeing what you were saying. This is, uh, you know, that there should be, you know, at least if a precedent is established, if we're going to change it, then let's understand what Plato might call the account of the reasons why. If, if something has come to be, let's understand why it's come to be, the reasons why, and let's then understand if we need to change it. So what, what account of the reasons do we give for changing something? And when I say the account of the reasons why, this is what uh, Socrates called knowledge in the Mino. And 
the account of the reasons why comes about over time. It, it's not something that you get in an instant. It's something that you get by understanding the causes and effects over time. And so this is something that uh, I think he's clearly saying about the ruler here is that the, the good ruler, the good statesman understands the effects of time on things. And, and this is something that I think he's saying that the, the masses can't understand the effects of time on things because each one has their own motivations. So I, I think there's a number of important points that, that you raised there that really tie into this, into this dialogue very well. So thank you. And we'll go to JK. Well, if everything is, everyone, every, if laws are fallible and the, uh, the ruler, whoever is, be, it becomes a ruler, we think that he's the right person, that's, that's fallible, right? I mean, who's to determine he, he's the right person to, to lead, right? He's going to be fair and so forth. So, you know, what's, what's left, you know, is really just um, some form of democracy where the majority, at least, decides, can, can put, uh, you know, can voice and decide uh, who should uh, lead, right? And so, so it's hard to buy this argument that democracy is so so bad and it's the worst of all uh, all the other forms of government oligarchy and aristocracy and so forth and so like in this country you know we're supposed to have a democracy but it's not a real democracy because you know, instead of majority rule it's the 24 percent of the population is 24 percent because of the electoral college you know certain states do not you know uh, certain states with uh, the least populations have the same power as the the states with the most population so that's the that's the um, you know imbalance there, and so when we have leaders, we're not the leaders are not uh, chosen by the majority of people. They're chosen by twenty four percent, you know, which is quite an imbalance, you know. So we don't really have a true democracy in that sense. And that's a good point, and and, and you know, kind of echoes what Jose was saying about do in a so called representative democracy, do the elected leaders actually represent? And maybe that's the case when you, when you say that somebody's selected with 24% of the vote, is that really representative, you know, in mechanisms that provide one person's vote to count more than another person's vote, you know, such as the Electoral College in the US, maybe that's another case of diluting representation, or maybe when politicians are allowed to define their own district boundaries, their own constituency boundaries, uh, and, you know, then it said that politicians are choosing their voters and not the other way around. And again, the idea of representation is, is diluted or even destroyed. So, uh, you know, but it's, it's a point I think that, that Plato makes a number of times about democracy is, is that we call it all, we call it with one name, but maybe there are really a number of different things that, that it really is. And, you know, oligarchy, aristocracy, those are words that are brought into this dialogue. Rule effectively ruled by the few, uh, you know, the aristocracy being the wealthy, the oligarchy being the wealthy who are unconstrained by laws. And, and certainly, you know, Plato isn't saying that. Uh, I don't think he's saying that democracy is always the worst. Uh, I think he's saying that, you know, however, if there were an ideal leader who wasn't selfish and wasn't going to maim and murder and and be a tyrant, but actually a rule with intelligence and wisdom, um, then democracy is not your best choice in that circumstance, or at least democracy as it's been defined, you know, over, over the course of history. So I think there's a number of things that, that get quite complicated in that whole argument. Um, and certainly, 
you know, if he's seen as being anti-democratic, it doesn't mean that he's, you know, advocating for tyranny or, or anything of that sort. I think quite the opposite. So there's definitely a number of con- complex and confusing ideas to to bring together. Right. I'm just saying, you know, what's the chances of you getting uh, the right statesman, right? You know, yeah. through time. And what are the percentages of, of time when you have the right statesman? And who's going to choose that person? I mean, how does he prove himself? And uh, does he just choose himself? Or is, it, is there a small few that choose, choose him to be the, the one that's going to lead? I mean, what is the mechanism for, for that? And, you know, and historically it's been the, the divine right of kings, you know, they're somehow they're chosen by, by, you know, divinity and that it runs in and they continue through generations in the same family and so forth. Absolutely. In the divine right of kings, I think that's a good example of how, how a convenient system or a, a system could be conveniently invented. Of course, was anybody ever appointed by God? What evidence is there of this? But it was quite a convenient reason to use that kept sustained these kings and often tyrants in power for a long time. Uh, and so, yes, how do we come about these rulers? It's an interesting, I just wanted to point out at 298A and then again at 301D, something that I talked about in my introduction about the historical precedent. And, you know, certainly these single rule by single people have not turned out well in history. You know, I don't know, maybe King Solomon was, a, you know, a different character, but Certainly Henry VIII and some other tyrants like him bring us very bad precedents. And so that leads us to assume that these people are always going to be like that. So at 298A, the visitor says, let's suppose that we all thought of, that we all thought of them as doing the most terrible things to us. 301D goes on further to, I'm just looking for the section here, 301D. Uh, it is in this way that the tyrant has come about, we say, in a king and oligarchy in democracy because people have found themselves unable to put up with the idea that single individuals um, of ours is monarch and refuse to believe that there would ever come to be anyone who deserved to rule in such a way so as to be willing and able to rule with virtue and expert knowledge distributing what is just and right correctly to all. They think that a person in such a position always mutilates, kills, and generally maltreats whichever of us he wishes. Although if there were to come to be someone of this sort we are describing, he would be prized and would govern a constitution that would alone be correct in the strict sense, steering it through happiness. In the strict sense, I think is the key word there. So yeah, no, thank you for raising that. I mean, this is the problem. This is the problem. How do we find such an individual in this world? Steve and then Darren. Going uh, to uh, 305 DDE, or what is really kingship? but not itself performing practical tasks, but control those with capacity to perform them because it it knows when it is the right time to begin and set in motion the most important things in cities and when it is the wrong time. So I think if we can use again, the example of Lincoln Lincoln knowing when it was time to to, uh, set aside certain rules, And I'd also like to use Henry VIII. I think you're characterizing him as a tyrant, that he became a tyrant just to divorce his wife, but that's a cliche. Henry VIII was a great humanist writer. And what he put in play, what he was questioning was the rule of the Catholic Church at the time. So he's an important figure in the Reformation and uh, the changes that the Catholic Church were were controlled by the the clergy and the land owning aristocrats. So what was coming into place in England and uh, with 
the Protestant Reformation was the uh, trading class, the, the, the nouveau rich, the new rich as it was in Rome, uh, and that there was a questioning of this authoritative uh, rules of the church. And that set in motion so many things that are part of our modern world. You know, the uh, expansion of England was potentially tied to the fact that they, they had this uh, more free society and that they were able to uh, include more people and expand it. And, you know, if you look at history, that, that led to the Magna Carta and the, Carta and the because the, the uh, nobles had more power and they could rein in the kings at the time from their power. And that also led to, you know, what is, you know, currently the Canada in the United States. So I think that uh, the characterization of Henry VIII should be more towards, you know, it definitely had his bad spots, but so did all kings and rulers of that time and many a lot worse, you know, but, you know, he's, he was a very important figure in, in being the, the, the enlightened ruler at the right time and, uh, calling into question some of the established laws and ancestral traditions of the, you know, the Catholic church has been ruling for, you know, 1400 years to, uh, to change those to which, you know, you know, going forward, you can see the line diverging to uh, the modern world. Thanks. And I appreciate that perspective. And, and certainly I, I was being, overly brief when I was characterizing Henry VIII as always a tyrant, uh, because he certainly did have some good qualities. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, a writer, uh, he wrote songs, you know, and he, he did manage to reform things. And I think it, you know, maybe the reform, as you're saying, turned out well, but I think maybe some of the reasons for it were not the right reasons. So the fact that something turns out maybe for the better, but for the wrong reasons, uh, I don't, think necessarily excuses the the ruler who who does the wrong things at the wrong time why do you um, think they were the wrong reasons he was questioning yeah. the rules of the church that said a man and a wife that were 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 should be able to get divorced mm -hmm. do you disagree with uh, what he was trying to to change and he also he he ended up taking away a lot of the power of the monasteries and the and the the Catholic Church at the time. So I, I'd like to hear why you think those were the wrong reasons, if you don't mind. Well, sure. And, and you know, I think, yeah, I mean, it is, it is right to question rules, like, why, why should it not be possible to get a divorce? Another thing, I think, just to go and just do something because you yourself think that that's the right thing to do without the appropriate counsel. And certainly, you know, his his uh, one of his key counsels, Thomas More, for example, he put to death because Thomas More refused to take the oath of allegiance to uh, to the new church. Um, and you know, so these acts where where he's murdering and maiming people because of something that he thinks is right is not is not the way I don't think that the visitor familia is describing the ideal ruler. The ideal ruler would do things that thinks with reason and intelligence are the right things to do, but not through means like that. And, and the, the, the good ruler is someone who puts in place the office holders who have both courage and moderation. And the good ruler takes the counsel from those advisors who are those office holders who have uh, those, those capacities. And so 
you know, when a figure like Thomas More, and there was others, I mean, you know, he wasn't the only one who lost his head uh, when Henry got angry. I think that's when you need to take the counsel of, of people around you and not just say, well, just what I say goes, you know, that's certainly not what, that's certainly not what the visitor from is, is, um, uh, is advocating here. So I think it's, but, you know, it, there were reasons to do, as you say, I mean, and certainly the, the church had a great deal of power. The church had accumulated a great deal of land. And so Henry just appropriated all of the expropriated, all of the, the, you know, the monasteries, now, did he use the proceeds from that expropriation for good purposes, or did he use it to conduct his wars? You know, again, the debate can go on. So, but it wasn't all bad. It's just a question, I guess, of, of maybe degrees of what the ruler's intentions are. Um, so, you, you, but you raise some very good points, and, and it brings it comes it comes back to that debate about, um, you know, where where is the line drawn? You know, as you said earlier, where is where is the divide? Um, so it's it's a very good point. I don't know what the answer is to that. So thank you for bringing that, uh, and thank you again for highlighting that section 305 DDE, which I've got here on the screen. It's very critical that understanding when is the right time to begin and set in motion uh, the important things. Uh, that that's a very key thing. So Darren, your thoughts? I just want to come back to some of the discussion about like how to choose the right ruler or uh, the best rulers um, and how they come about. I think that's the problem as it's often posed in um, these discussions. And um, as we've already seen, like it, it seems like um, the stranger or Plato problematizes that possibility, whether we could ever identify or um, somehow place the right person in that position. So I, I just want to read, I think, I just want to read another passage that I think sheds some more light on Plato's approach to this problem. Um, so this is actually just continues on from passages that um, Steve and James yourself and, and I read. So this was that. So we've already seen the passage at 301D. And earlier I read the, the thing at 301E where, and I think you brought this up too, James, but where, where uh, the stranger questions whether we have, um, it's possible to have such a leader or whether we do have such a leader. So I just want to continue from that because I think it's interesting what he says next. So uh, I'll just read this passage. So this is at 301E to 302A now. So can we wonder then, Socrates, at all the evils that arise and are destined to arise in such kinds of government when they are based upon such a foundation and must conduct their affairs in accordance with written laws and with customs without knowledge? Maybe other people interpret this differently, but I understand this like as a knowledge that the divine ruler would have. Um, regarding individual cases, um, so we wouldn't need laws. So I think that's the kind of knowledge that's being referred to here. Uh, for everyone can see that any other art built upon such a foundation would ruin all its works that are so produced. Ought we not rather to wonder at the stability that inheres in the state? For states have labored under such conditions for countless ages. Nevertheless, some of them are lasting and are not overthrown. Many, to be sure, like ships that founder at sea are destroyed, have been destroyed, and will be destroyed hereafter through the worthlessness of their captains and crews who have the greatest ignorance of the greatest things, men who have no knowledge of statesmanship, but think they have in every respect most perfect knowledge of this above all other sciences. And younger Socrates says, very true. And the stranger says, is it then our duty to see which of these not right forms of government is the least difficult to live with? though all are difficult, and which is the most oppressive, 
although this is somewhat aside from the subject we had proposed for ourselves. On the whole, however, perhaps all of us have some such motive in mind in all that we are doing. And then younger Socrates says, yes, it is our duty, of course. This is a surprising turn in the dialogue for me because um, it's like Plato's like proposing a new way of looking at the problem, which is surprisingly modern. Instead of finding the right person, um, you know, who embodies, who understands, who has perfect knowledge and has perfect knowledge of the good and also of the world and individual circumstances, which seems impossible. So we just give up. It's like he's changing the problem here into a very modern way. Like I think it's a very modern way of looking at it. So it seems like all along, like up to now, it seems like, oh, you know, we're never going to have that really perfect form of government where, you know, we don't need laws. And it's just the person where the ideal is like a, uh, a, a kind of, it seems like a kind of divine ruler who would know all the particulars and know exactly what to do and what is good in the circumstance, which seems pretty hard to know. <laughs> but he's posing a different kind of problem now, which, which is to find like of the not, as he says, they're not right forms of government is the least difficult to live with. So all are difficult. And he poses this in, in, in almost like political science terms, right? He, he asks us to like see that, like wonder about how like the fact that, that some states, despite the fact that we don't, no one would like to, no one want to claim we have this perfect knowledge yet. Some states do persist and maybe do achieve some goods that are proper to a polity. But even though like we wouldn't claim that we have this perfect knowledge. So how, how did that happen? Like it's, it's almost like him saying, and so we have to try to find like which form other the ones are possible for us human beings, like which form is the least difficult and the least oppressive. So instead of like trying to achieve the, you know, the ultimate good, we're just looking for, <laughs> we just want to find something that's not the most oppressive thing and the most difficult thing to live with. And, and he's almost suggesting that like we look at our experience of the actually available <laughs> states and he says that like we've labored under such ignorance for the, as he says, countless ages. Nevertheless, some of them are, la are lasting and some are not overthrown. And so, yeah, I want to bring this up as, just to suggest that there might be different ways of posing the problem of political theory and what it is we want in a state. But Plato doesn't dismiss the idea of the most ideal kind of ruler either. That's a sort of ruling that might be possible, I think, as he described it, a myth. And I think the myth was there for a reason. Like, um, we, we could talk about that, um, but that's a different topic. I think the dialogue is a way of exploring this tension between like different approaches to the problem and ways of looking at things. Like we, we can try to achieve, and I, I, this is not just at the political level, this is at the individual level too. We could try to achieve the greatest, the perfect ideal and, you know, at the individual level, we could try to be saints or, you know, as he, as he, as he refers to various times here, we could, there's also the second best thing. Like if we can't do the, the most ideal thing, it doesn't mean like everything is up for grabs and we could just be immoral. It means like, well, maybe there's another lower level <laughs> if we can't or won't do the most ideal thing. If we think that's out of reach, maybe there's more a humane human level thing that maybe that's, we could maybe we use the word humane too. I don't know, but. So I think some of the complexity of this dialogue comes from, and you know, they're going back and forth and like, oh, you know, what does Plato not, like Plato doesn't like laws because he thinks we should have this divine ruler. But oh, wait, then he says we need laws again. <laughs> and it's like, okay, do we need laws or not? And he has this very, he ends up this very complicated, unstable view on laws, it seems. But I think that's just part of what I see, at least what I see going on here. And just from, this is just a thought provoked by some of the previous discussion that there's this like exploration of the two approaches and which do we take well you know as these dialogues often go like Plato does sort of leave an open question and like I think he wants us to keep thinking like maybe in the end that's the most important thing like whether it's about the laws or what the good is, is to keep thinking 
well said yeah i mean certainly that's that's the the modus operandi of, of plato i think uh, all throughout is is not to give us the absolute answer but to make us think and certainly this makes us think because it, it certainly you know and especially now that we've got the perception i think a lot of people have the perception that democracy is the best but is it maybe a case of being best of the worst you know and who was it winston churchill i think said that right that democracy is a bad form of government but all other forms are terrible uh, or all other forms are worse and so and apparently and apparently that comes from plato <laughs> exactly well right here <laughs> 302b right on the screen yeah. you know <laughs> Uh, which of these incorrect plan. constitutions is least difficult to give with, live with, given that they are all difficult, and which is the heaviest to bear? I, I think that's the that's the question that you you raised, right? And so, this you know a lot of the question comes about you know in the the second theme that I've highlighted here, this this idea of um, the exercise of expertise versus imitation. And so when they set up or when they define the six different types of constitutions, two for the rule by one, two for rule by the few, and two for rule by the many, they're holding these to be imitations uh, of, of the real truth. So these are not perfect, you know, and we understand that we get into these things, or we should understand when we get into these things that they're not perfect. And so they're imitations. And so I think if we understand that we're dealing with imitations rather than perfection, uh, we would then be more willing to forgive each other for errors and to adjust things where required to to learn from those kind of historical precedents that jose talked about earlier to understand which precedents work and which don't you know to make the account of the reasons why and when we have that account of the reasons why then we understand that okay this imitation wasn't the best imitation so we'll tweak it and we'll, we'll create another imitation that's better than that imitation but again it's it's done with intelligence and with wisdom and not by some sort of random process, not by by these you know rulers of of factions. You know this uh, this great quote at three hundred three C. So then we must also remove those who participate in all of these constitutions, except for the one based on knowledge, as being not statesmen but experts in faction. We must say that as presiding over insubstantial images again, these imitation on the largest scale, they are themselves of the same sort, and that as the greatest imitators and magicians, they turn out to be the greatest sophists among sophists. And, and you know, maybe, as I said in the introduction, maybe we don't have to look too deeply to find these sophists, the, the greatest sophists among sophists now, you know, that, uh, that these, and, and particularly maybe technology is allowing this sort of distortion of these imitations and these, uh, these sophists, uh, to, you know, who are you know, using a lot of illogic uh, to arise. And so, you know, maybe there's understanding the, this, you know, what we're dealing with is imitation. And so I've highlighted passages from 297A to 297E, in which the visitor and young Socrates, uh, again, talk about the, the steering analogy. And, you know, I found this actually relates a lot to what actually wound up happening to old Socrates. So old Socrates, was of course condemned by the jury in Athens for corrupting youth and he was put to death. And so maybe that's an example of, uh, you know, the, these rigid laws, these rigid constitutions that were used or, or, or were abused by people to produce an outcome that was not logical and, and not appropriate. And so maybe I'll just, just read this section here that's on the screen. So the visitor says, just as a steersman, always watching out for what is to the benefit of the ship and the sailors, preserves his fellow sailors, not by putting things down in writing, but offering his expertise as law, 
So too in this manner, a constitution would be correct, would it not? If it issued from those who are able to rule in this way, offering the strength of their expertise as more powerful than the laws. And there is no mistake is there for wise rulers, whatever they do, provided that they watch for one great thing, that by always distributing to those in the city what is most just, as judged by the intelligent application of their expertise, they are able both to preserve them and so far as they can bring it about that they are better than they were. Young Socrates says, it's, it is certainly not possible to contradict what has just been said. Visitor goes on to say, well, and neither should one contradict those other things we said. Young Socrates says, what are you referring to? Visitor says that a mass of people, that a mass of any people whatsoever would never be able to acquire this sort of expert knowledge and so govern a city with intelligence. So that's a pretty bold declaration there. And that we must look for that one constitution, the correct one, in relation to a small element in the population, few in number, or even a single individual, putting down the other constitutions as imitations, as was said a little earlier, some of them imitating this one for the better, the others for the worse. Young Socrates says, what do you mean by this? What are you saying? For I do not understand the point about imitations when it was made just now either. Visitor says, and it's no small matter if one stirs up this subject and then proceeds to leave it where it is instead of going through it and showing the mistake that now occurs in relation to it. And, and this is what I said earlier. I think this is where he's saying, you know, don't assume that I'm being anti-democratic. It's just, it's a complex thing. And so young Socrates says, what mistake is that? The visitor says, the sort of thing we must hunt for since it is not altogether what we are used to or easy to see, but all the same, let's try to get hold of it. Tell me, given that this constitution we have talked about is, on our view, the only correct one, do you recognize that the others ought to employ the written documents that belong to this one and say themselves in this way, doing what is now praised, although it is not the most correct thing to do? Young Socrates says, what are you referring to? And the visitor says, the principle that no one in the city should dare to do anything contrary to the laws, and that the person who dares to do so should be punished by death and all the worst punishments. This is very correct and fine as a second choice when one changes the principle that we discussed just now, which is our first choice. But let us go over the way in which this, uh, in which what we have called the second best has come about. And the second best is that rigid constitution that just cannot be changed and everybody has to adhere to it. But um, so I'll just end that reading by saying, you know, this is, is really, I think, what happened to Socrates, you know, the, what the visitor says right at the end there, that the principle that no one in the city should dare do anything contrary to the laws, and that the person who dares to do so should be punished by death and all the worst punishments, well, that's what happened to old Socrates. So this the discussion here with young Socrates, I find this an interesting dramatic element in that discussion. So, you know, are we dealing with imitations now when we, when we bind ourselves to these things that are deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, you know, are we, are we stuck with imitations and are we overlooking what could be the truth, which is really, you know, ultimately, I think Plato is trying to say that government by knowledge is the best government. And the question is, how do we get knowledge in a democratic form of government, you know, which is, you know, maybe the ideal that we're striving for, that we want to all have some sort of power, but is that possible with knowledge? Darren, your thoughts? Just have a quick comment and then a question. So I think it's interesting you bring out old Socrates and what happened to him because in the uh, Crito we see that Socrates actually accepts the laws. Like he he said he was he was bound to it. He doesn't try to escape his fate, even though even given the opportunity to escape death. Absolutely. 
So that's interesting because that I don't know the the laws. Well, as we've seen in early dialogue, the laws pose like yeah this this conundrum that keeps coming up, and it, it applies to even like in the um what's the Euthyphro regarding religion religious practice and divine laws too. So that's just a comment. And then the question I have is um so. So I was trying to figure this out, but then, you know, I ran out of time to, to resolve this. But at 303B, the stranger talks about the seventh form of government. And then he says, for that must be set apart from all the others as God is set apart from men. What is the seventh form? Is it like the individual ruler with knowledge? Is that the seventh form? What is the seventh form? He refers to his number. And I was like, what is the seventh one? Yeah, the seventh one... Um... And this is after they go through the different the the merits of these different six different constitutions and right uh, you know they said uh, what was the seventh <laughs> yeah so the yeah so he yeah, says so, so yeah, it's like the, it's like democracy like with yeah. um with knowledge yeah so he says yeah for this reason if all types of constitution are law abiding it turns out uh, it turns out to be the, and it meaning democracy turns out to be the worst of them but if all I are see. contrary to law. The best. So he's saying that democracy could be best if all of the others are contrary to law. And if all are uncontrolled, living in a democracy takes the prize. But if they are ordered, life in it is least livable. And in the first and in first place, and best by far, will be life in the first, except for the seventh. For all of them, that one we must separate out from the other constitutions, like a God for men. And he's talking there about uh, one based on knowledge. He goes further down in in, uh, in part C there. So then we must remove those who participate in all these constitutions, except for the one based on knowledge. Uh, so I think I think the seventh is the one that's based on knowledge. And okay. knowledge is knowledge is the challenge. You know, we think that we know things, but we don't really know things. Right. And so, like, I, I find it quite significant, though. Okay, so thanks for clarifying that, James. I mean, that's really interesting, though, that he says that this from the seventh form, my translation reads, with the exception of the seventh, for that must be set apart from all the others as God is set apart from men. Like, this is sort of what I was saying before about that he's exploring these two ways of looking at a problem. Like, he's always posing this form of government as like, uh, if, if we can have a ruler or rulers who have knowledge, I, I'm assuming both, like, you need knowledge, both of the good and the, all the individual circumstances, you know, so you know how to apply the good. Like if we had someone like that, then that would be great. Like he's always holding this as the ideal, but then he's always removing it. It's like he's he was tantalizing us with this image. And then he's always like pushing it at a distance. Because here he says he even pushes it like almost an infinite distance away. He says, as God is set apart from men, well, we're not going to be gods. We're not, we're definitely not going to be that God as he presents in the myth. And but then he says, like, without knowledge, then we're all sophists. So it's like, okay, all right, we don't want to be sophists because we we know his attitude towards that from the previous dialogue. So he's always drawing us to the ideal and getting us to want to achieve it. And then he's always pushing it almost a distance that we can't possibly get to. A good observation. And, you know, in the last episode, I mentioned the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast episode entitled Why People Hate Plato. And maybe that's a reason why people hate Plato is that he's he's holding this ideal and then he's saying to us, you'll never reach that ideal. You know, it's it's kind of maybe where he seems to be elitist. But then I think that's maybe a case of people not following the law, the, the very complex, convoluted logic all the way through. But it's, it's, a, it's a good observation. Um, Steve, your thoughts. So going from what you were saying, uh, going to your point three, statement, statesmanship tempered and harmonized by knowledge of time, mm -hmm. then I would 
<clears throat> go to um, 306B to 307D, the last paragraph, by calling them excessive admin. I'm going to skip a bit around a little bit to start with. Uh, is put, calling them excessive and manic, which you know I, you could say let's call them progressive, sharper than is timely, and appear too fast and too hard. Then calling other things that are too deep and slow, conservative, cowardly, and lethargic. And then down uh, to near the uh, you, you underlined, or I think because of their affinity to either set of qualities, they praise some things as belonging to their own kid and censor those of the opponents as alien, engaged in a great deal of hostility towards each other among a great many things. So I think this is the point, the last sentence, while this disagreement, these classes of people is a sort of play, but in relation to the most important thing, it turns out to a disease, which is the most hateful of all for all cities. So I'm just wondering what uh, everyone thinks about uh, that aspect that uh, made me think. Mm -hmm. And that, thank you for, for calling that particular part out. And there he's talking about this tension between the virtues, which isn't, we haven't got to that yet, but we've only got about 10 minutes remaining. And so it's a good time to get to that, you know, because there are these qualities that he says um, are brought up, especially in families. So, you know, one family might be led by somebody who's particularly courageous and that courageous quality tends to transmit through that the generations of that family whereas other families might be more conservative or moderate temperate uh, and that will that tradition will prevail through that family and so there's this tension that arises between these two virtues you know we've got the virtue of courage and the virtue of moderation and how do you reconcile those and so here he's making the point near the end of the dialogue that it's the the, the ruler whose job it is not to do the particular work like the, the ruler is not the one who's administering the laws but the ruler is the one who's administering the office holders and the, the office holders are going to be some are going to be courageous some will be moderate some will push the limits other will push others will push back and it's the, the ruler's job to understand this tension between these two virtues in particular courage and moderation and somehow bring them into some sort of balance and harmony i think that's that's the key because again these these virtues play out over time. And, and if you get the people who rush out, you know, and take actions before they fully think about them, that can have bad results. And if, if you get people who refuse to act when they should act, who are too moderate, then we get into other problems. So in, in this part, I think he's really saying that, that you don't want to let the city get into this disease of just being ruled by one type of virtue or the other type of virtue somehow there has to be a balance. So that's the way I see that that particular section. So thank you for raising that. And, and let's see what other people think too. We'll go to JK and then Darren. So is the uh, Republic uh, a, uh, you know, since his uh, ideal form of government where the, uh, the, the rulers are philosophers, kings, and, um, and with that, does that necessarily discount um, the uh, inclusion of democracy within that ideal of form of government where, you know, where there are, the emphasis is on education, perhaps, and the people who are who are subjects are also, you know, um, have been educated to understand who should be the, the be the rulers. Well, that's that's a great question. I I don't know the answer. I I wonder if there's some sort of compromise, you know, in in the sense of you know, if you have a philosopher ruler, that means they have 
trained and have a certain amount of knowledge. In the Republic, uh, Socrates says the first order of knowledge of a philosopher is of number and calculation. So there's a certain education that the, the person who is going to become a ruler should have. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's not a lot of debate, maybe just on the point that a ruler should have some knowledge, right? I think we could all agree on that. But it's a question of who's going to choose the rulers. And so, you know, maybe there is some sort of compromise where certain people are trained for this. And then maybe, maybe the people can choose from among a number of such potential rulers. So it's not an absolute democracy in which anybody could be a ruler, because we see now what happens in that sort of case. I think there are some very bad examples of anybody's who have become rulers. But maybe it is a question of narrowing the pool of, of potential rulers to you know, a, a number of people who could then be chosen from the people at large, but always critically must maintain within the law or must be maintained within the law so that these people can never get above the law and never can become the law unto themselves, you know, and, and to do things just because it benefits them. I think that's the, that's the key. So I just sort of out as an idea. But even the people who are choosing the rulers uh, should have some basic uh, under, understanding of what's going on, right? So they need, need some uh, basic levels of education about government and uh, mm -hmm. character and so forth uh, mm -hmm. to be able to make those choices. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the tension you know, with, the, with the right to vote, you know, maybe comes a responsibility to understand some of the basic things, you know, some of the civic rules. I don't know if civics are taught in school anymore. I think we got a little bit when I was going through school many, many moons ago, but whether that's taught anymore, I, I don't know uh, to what extent. But yes, yeah, certainly, certainly a vote cast without any sort of knowledge, you know, just as a random vote or because you like somebody's name or you, you like somebody's skin color or whatever, to me, that's not democracy. That's, that's just an exercise and that's almost tyranny in a way. It, it, it's rule without any sort of basis in reason. So definitely reason, I, I would say, has to come into play. Very good question. I mean, that's, we could have an episode on that alone, that, that question. So thank you. Um, Darren. So I want to make a comment on the uh, clash of virtues or, or a couple of comments. I, I think where, where this idea was first introduced, I think um, the dialogue does say that it might apply to other virtues too like how, how the virtues in general tend to, or can clash. Though I think the thesis actually is, is, is stronger than can here. The thesis is that they do clash, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is one of the reasons why the statesman seems to be required to step up here. So I think that's interesting idea in general about the virtues in general. And then uh, I think it's, well, I, th I think there's a lot of interesting echoes of today, even like this is so relevant. There's stuff here that describes a kind of like social polarization about how you know the groups just sort of mingle with each other and then they even breed with each other and then they form families with each other. So then they just become more like their type. Like these are almost like personality types, I find. And this is actually a thing that's been studied um, that th this kind of polarization exists in the, at least in the US a lot more than Canada, where like geographically people are like moving into like Republicans are living in Republican areas and increasingly they're segregated. They live in different communities from like Democrats and people are sorting themselves in this way. And uh, so I, I just find it interesting how like, there's just so many echoes in this whole section, the whole stretch of text, what's happening or what that continues to happen in politics up to this day. And, and what I find significant about 
uh, the characterization of the statesman here. The statesman is is almost like managing all these forces. He's like Plato's almost describing different forces in the state here. The courageous is described as you know the unrestrained forces, and then the you know the moderate or the self restrained forces. And how you know Plato sees both these forces as necessary because you have, if you have too much self restraint in people, or you know if you have too little, they both end up on a sort of train to slavery. He says, which is pretty extreme thing to say, but that's what he says. So it's interesting that Plato sort of looks up to both forces, but also sees both forces as dangerous if you have too much of it. And how the way they're reconciled is not within the individuals. Like that, he could have easily proposed that, but he says it's not. It's like these different characters they sort of mix with each other. I mean, amongst themselves, they mix with each other amongst themselves. You know, he describes these great tensions between these types of people. Um, so what the states, what what the statesman does is he manages forces like social forces and and human forces. So I don't know. I, I find that kind of it's like a kind of interesting kind of knowledge. I don't know like what the word is, but it's like he's managing motiv- human motivations, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good observation. It's almost like the 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 ideal ruler is some sort of psychologist who understands human behavior uh, and and is able to work with that and and doesn't necessarily judge people as being right or wrong. Doesn't condemn people but manages, you know, with, with what's there and available. And, and, you know, it brings it back to that um, analogy of weaving that we started with in the Statesman and has been used many other times in Plato's dialogues, you know, this, this weaving of a fabric, intertwining of, of differing factions and, and factors and, and working it all in so that there's some sort of harmony in this mix. It's never going to be perfect, but there, there has to be harmony. I think that's the key. And so you, I like the way that you raise that because it really leads into the conclusion of the statesman, which is this section from 310D to 311A. And given that we are almost out of time, I thought maybe I would just end today's session by reading this, because I think this brings us to an understanding of what this ideal state and, and its ruler is. And so I've got it up here on the screen. So this is a visitor talking. It is in the nature of courage that when it is reproduced over many generations without being mixed with a moderate nature, it comes to a peak of power at first, but in the end, it bursts out completely in fits of madness. And in its turn, the soul that is too full of reserve and has no admixture of courageous initiative and is reproduced over many generations in this way, by nature grows more sluggish than is timely, and then in the end is completely crippled. It was these bonds that I meant when I said that there was no difficulty at all in tying them together once the situation existed in which both types had a single opinion about what was fine and good. For this is the single and complete task of kingly weaving together, never to allow moderate dispositions to stand away from the courageous, rather by working them closely into each other as if with a shuttle, that's a part of the weaving process, through sharing of opinions, through honors, Dishonor, esteem, and the giving of pledges to one another, it draws together a smooth and fine woven fabric out of them, as the expression is, and always entrusts offices and cities to these in common. By choosing the person who has both qualities to put in charge wherever there turns out to be a need for a single officer, and by mixing together a part of each of these groups where there is a need for more than one. For the dispositions of moderate people when in office are markedly cautious, just, and conservative, but they lack bite and a certain sharp and practical keenness. And the dispositions of the courageous in their turn are inferior to the others in relation to justice and caution, but have an exceptional degree of keenness when it comes to action. 
Everything in cities cannot go well, either on the private or on the public level, unless both of these groups are there to give their help. So again, this intertwining of these different natures of people. And then he concludes in the last paragraph, then let us say that this marks the completion of the fabric, which is the product of the art of statesmanship, the weaving together with regular intertwining of the dispositions of brave and moderate people, when the expertise belonging to the king brings their life together in agreement and friendship and makes it common between them, completing the most significant and best of all fabrics and covering it with it all the other inhabitants of cities, both slave and free, and holds them together with this twining and rules and directs without, so far as it belongs to a city to be happy, falling short of that in any respect. And so that's the conclusion. So there is in the end no perfection, but there is a, an individual who is ruling with knowledge, with intelligence, and not arbitrarily, who is bringing these different dispositions together and finding the common ground. Uh, and that takes knowledge, it takes, it takes an understanding of people and their motivations, and it takes an understanding of time and the effects of time and the, the causes and effects that led to things as they are now. In other words, the account of the reasons why, and then understanding what you're going to do with that account of the reasons why, which is, as Plato said in uh, the Mino knowledge, the account of the reasons why. So I wanted to thank everybody for, I mean, we've had a great discussion in these three sessions on the statesman and preceded by three sessions on the sophist. I mean, I, I think it's it, there's this incredible logic that I'm sensing that it's all come together, you know, from from the six sessions in, in total that in uh, some very important points that, that people have raised. And, and again, I'm going to listen to this recording as well as the others again, because I think it's there's there's so much to be picked up, you know, and so much nuance to be picked up on on reviewing and revisiting these ideas. They, they just they cannot just be left. You know, they have to be continually built on and, and worked worked on. And to understand, you know, I, th I think, as you said, Darren, this incredible relevance to today, I, I think we're reading, especially in today's section at the end of the, the Statesman, I think there are so many points that are very relevant to our modern world, our modern technological world, 2,400 years after Plato wrote these points. And so I think they, they are incredibly important. And, and I think there needs to be a very broad discussion about this. And we need to set aside biases but the meanings of words and how things came to be and just understand how we go forward. And, and you know, JK, you asked that excellent question of how we choose the, the right leader. Uh, and that's, that's a question that's very much unresolved today, but a very, a very important question, given the power, the technological power that we have in this world that could destroy us if the wrong leader gets their hands on the levers of, those, uh, of that power. So... Very relevant. And so thank you all for such a great discussion. And I look forward to our next session, which we will move to Parmenides. I've been figuring, I've been trying to think about how we can cover all of Parmenides in, in three sessions or less. And I've come to the conclusion that we can't. So I think we'll do Parmenides in two sessions. And I'll do it in maybe a little bit of a different way where I'll present, you know, I think what are some of the key logical sections. Uh, and maybe we can start discussing those this season and then pick up again next season. So we'll, we'll take a break uh, after the end of June. We'll end season two at the end of June and then come back uh, in September for season three. And we can pick up again on Parmenides in season three. But I'd like to introduce Parmenides in, in season two because there's some very important pieces of logic that I think tie particularly well to the sophist and the statesman. 
And so maybe it's a natural kind of uh, next step for us to, to look at. So next uh, session, we'll look at Parmenides and we'll start by looking at Parmenides to 141a, which is when they start talking about the effects of time. So I focused on time in this episode and I think we'll, we'll see the setup in Parmenides to that point 141a, uh, where they tar start talking about time in particular. So that'll be for the next, next session in two weeks. And in the meantime, um, I thank everybody for participating. Hope to see you in two weeks. And anybody who wishes to stay online now, I'll end the recording and uh, we can stay online for a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general.